18 through 25 together. John 21, verses 18 through 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that 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 disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious word and ask that as we spend these moments meditating upon it, that Holy Spirit, you would teach us pray those very things that we even sang about this morning, that you would form our hearts, transform our minds, conform our wills. Do that inner work, Lord, work that only you can accomplish. Make us open to your truth. Cause us to receive your truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning we come to the end of John's Gospel. And at the outset today, I'd like to read a few thoughts from A.W. Pink, who includes an appendix to his commentary on John's Gospel. The commentary that he wrote was produced after having studied this Gospel for ten years. He preached through John three times during those ten years... And he taught Bible classes on the book at the same time. He spent another six years writing his commentary. So his pace was a chapter a month. And the book is 72 chapters long. So it took him six years to complete his commentary. Um, He used over 40 commentaries himself that he went through and read their interpretations and carefully weighed their um, conclusions. And I feel a kinship with... A.W. Pink, with some of the concluding remarks that he, he makes as we draw ever nearer to the end of our Harmony of the Gospels that we started back in September of 2007. Pink says this, The instruction, the help, and blessing which we have received personally while preparing each chapter has been a rich compensation for the time, prayer, and work we've put into them. Our own faith, in the inerrancy and perfection of the scriptures has been strengthened, and the conviction we had at the outset that every verse contains a mine of spiritual wealth has been confirmed again and again. That our production is very far from being perfect, we're fully aware. But such as it is, we lay it before the Lord and humbly entreat him to use, own, and bless it to many of his dear people. So as we turn to these last words in John's Gospel, we discover the primary reason why chapter 21 is included and written by John. He's wanting to clear up a wrongful conclusion that had been drawn regarding something that Jesus said to Peter on this occasion. But we're also going to see here Jesus' further instructions to Peter after having reinstated Peter, as we saw last time, reinstated him for service after, remember, his threefold, Peter's threefold denial is then counteracted with his ability to now make a threefold affirmation, saying that he loves Jesus. And then 
Jesus gives a threefold commission, telling him to feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and then feed my sheep. But even in the midst of that dialogue, Peter has some questions about Jesus' plan, not for himself, but for John. Now, I'm sure that all of us have had an occasion in which we've been told to mind your own business. Have you ever been told that before? I'm, sure, I'm certain we all have at some point. Or maybe we've said that to someone else. Perhaps we ourselves have even directed our own selves with those words. But this morning I want to make a kind of a play off of those words in a sermon entitled, Mind Your Lord's Business. We're going to walk through the closing verses of John by noting three things. First, an unsought promise. An unsought promise. Secondly, a simple command. And thirdly, an appropriate admission. So first, an unsought promise. Second, a simple command. And third, an appropriate admission. Let's first of all consider this unsought promise. Jesus says to Peter, as we pick up on the story here at the end of John's Gospel, in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. He tells Peter that there was a time in your life in which you were given free dress and free movement. As a young man, you had great freedom and independence. Our school is a uniform school. And so whenever it's a free dress day, this is a special treat for students on campus. As a matter of fact, we kind of instated this this year and gave it as a privilege to people who won student of the month honors and stuff of this nature. But we discovered after this year that we'll never allow that privilege again. For students take advantage of the liberty given to them. Free dress is truly free dress. And so it will be not quite so free dress next year um, and going forward. But Peter had known what it was to dress himself as he wished, to go where he wished. He was a relatively unknown fisherman when Jesus first found him. And quite literally, he went wherever he wished, whenever he wished. But Jesus tells Peter all of that is going to change. You're going to move from a position of free dress and movement to a position of forced dress and movement. Now, Peter had been following Jesus for three years, and while he was one of Jesus' disciples, he experienced the greatest sort of freedom imaginable, that freedom that comes from being spiritually set free and forgiven. But Jesus had already told his disciples that while you have a message of good news to share with people, I can tell you as my ambassador that you're not not going to receive a warm welcome from this world. You're bringing a message of peace to people, but you're going to be treated with hatred. Jesus said in this very gospel, John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. He says a little bit further in John chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, these things have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. He says, they're even going to think that they're serving the Lord by persecuting you. You see, amazing foreshadowing in particular of Paul, who was Saul, right? Thinking he was doing God's work by persecuting the way, persecuting Christians. Remember when Jesus appears to him on the road and he says, you've been persecuting me, right? Why have you been persecuting me? Jesus tells his disciples, you can expect this sort of welcome, a very unwarm welcome, a welcome that will involve persecution and suffering. He tells Peter, when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and will bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this means at least three things for Peter. First of all, it means that he's going to live for quite a few more years. He says, when you are old... So by implication, that means that Peter is going to live for some period of time before this happens. In fact, the words themselves could be a bit cryptic. Is this merely a reference to old age? I wonder about how many of those who are elderly 
have experienced this. Unable to dress themselves, being put somewhere they would rather not go. <laughs> um, who has experienced these sorts of things before? It, it could be just a reference to the fact that he's going to be older and he's going to need others to attend to him. He won't be able to dress himself. But John's comment on these words in verse 19 makes it clear that Jesus' words meant more than that. Not only telling Peter that you're going to grow old and be unable to do the things you used to do in your youth, but that there's going to be something that happens to you particularly. John says that he said these things on purpose to signify the death by which Peter would die and thereby glorify God. The comment that John makes is very similar to the comment that he makes after Jesus makes a statement in John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus says, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the rule of the world will be cast out. And then Jesus says in verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So again, that statement could be slightly cryptic. In what sense is Jesus being lifted up? What is this a reference to? But then John says right after that, verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So here John again makes this comment on Jesus' words. When Jesus said this to Peter, he was making a statement regarding Peter's own death. So the first implication of Jesus' words is that Peter will grow old, he'll live a little bit longer, but secondly, that Peter will die a martyr's death. And by the time that John is writing this gospel, it is almost certain that Peter has already been martyred. Clement of Rome in AD 96 speaks of Peter's martyrdom. Tertullian in AD 212 indicates that Peter was crucified in his martyrdom. Eusebius records later, and many of maybe you have heard this, that Peter is actually crucified upside down. That is debated and questioned. Eusebius does say that, um, but some people believe that maybe that was, you know, because it happened so much later, his recording of that. Some people think there might be some legendary accretions. But the idea was that Peter said, I'm not worthy to die the way that my Lord did, so crucify me upside down. That we're not sure of, but for sure we know that Peter did die a martyr's death, and he died by crucifixion. And so then as we hear Jesus saying, you'll stretch out your arms, you'll be dressed by someone else, and you'll be brought somewhere where you do not wish to go. Jesus is telling Peter that while you denied me, and now I've reinstated you, while you denied me, you'll have future opportunity to give bold witness for me. To bear witness of your love for me and of your loyalty to me. The very thing that Peter boasted that he was ready to do on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. That no matter what happens, Jesus, everyone else deserts you. I won't. Remember, Peter denies Jesus three times. And even this in the presence of being asked by little girls and the like. But in not that long from here, Peter will stand courageously in bold witness for Jesus. Ready to die for him. So Peter's insistence, I will lay down my life for you in John 13, 37, will eventually come to pass, although delayed in the meantime. And it wouldn't be, though, from some strength in Peter, but a strength from outside of Peter that would allow him to do this. Peter would be able to lay down his life because having now admitted his weakness, Christ's strength would be evident within Peter's witness. This strength, this courage, this boldness, would be identified as not coming from Peter, but coming from Jesus. I love the way that this comes up in the book of Acts, early on in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. After Peter and John have made bold confession regarding Jesus and they're preaching the gospel, I love this statement. It says, now they observed the confidence of Peter and John. They saw the courage of these men, and they understood that these men were uneducated and untrained men. These are a couple of fishermen, right? They're uneducated, untrained men, and they were amazed. And I love this next statement. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You see, it wasn't something within Peter that allowed him to have this courage and this boldness, but his relationship with Christ. They recognized that these men were men who had spent time with Jesus. That's where their confidence was. It wasn't in past learning, for they hadn't been educated men. It wasn't in themselves as Peter himself had realized what happens if he trusted himself. He just failed miserably. They began to recognize that that courage, that boldness was due to the fact that these men had been with Jesus. 
The third thing that Jesus indicates is not only that Peter will go older, not only that Peter will be martyred, but thirdly, that Peter's death would be for the glory of God. Peter's death would be for the glory of God. I love the statement from Ryle. He says, we're so apt to regard life as the only season for honoring Jesus and action as the only mode of showing our religion that we overlook death except as the painful termination of our usefulness. Yet surely this ought not be. We may die to the Lord as well as live to the Lord. We may be patient sufferers as well as active workers. Like Samson, we may do more for God in our death than we ever did in our lives. Romans 14, 7. For not one of us lives for himself. Not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Church history has borne this out to be the case. So often the church grew leaps and bounds, not only by the living, the transparent, authentic Christian living of the saints, but of their death, their martyrdoms, sealing their testimony with their own blood. We see a fulfillment here of Jesus' previous words in John 13, 36, when Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. You won't follow me now, but you will follow later. It's such a comfort to know that Jesus is the Lord of life as well as death. There's tremendous comfort here. He's the Lord of life and death. Peter had just confessed his unshaking belief that Jesus knew all things. Remember, after Jesus asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, now Jesus demonstrates the extent to which his detailed knowledge goes, for he knows even future events including the specific death, and not only his death, but the manner of death of Peter. I believe in general it's God's general grace to us that we lack foreknowledge of our own deaths. I think that's a blessed ignorance. Would you like to know if you're going to die tomorrow? Would you like to know right now? Some of us say, yeah, I'd like to know. I think in many cases I'd rather not know. (laughs) I'd rather not know. I think it's a blessed ignorance that the Lord provides us. He tells us to be ready with each day, right? We are not guaranteed another moment. Either our own death or the Lord's return is imminent. But knowing that our Lord knows our death, that's a great comfort. And he's forearranged our future. And the fact that he has is a blessed consolation. There is hope in this. Knowing that things aren't arranged by luck or chance, that our deaths aren't accidents, that we're in the Lord's hand and that we can trust him. And knowing that our God is all wise and all good and that he loves his children assures us that circumstances that attend to our lives and our deaths are in some way bringing him glory in our, in our, and are in some way for our good. Even in those moments that we, they're past our finding out. We don't understand many things that happen. But this is what gives life and death its meaning. For the atheist, there is no meaning either to life or death. We're cosmic accidents. We're protoplasm that evolved into something supposedly better than it started at, which itself is a contradiction. But everything in the atheistic worldview, ultimately, is meaningless. It's empty. It's void of purpose. But knowing that our God is Lord not only of our lives, but of our deaths, gives both life and death meaning and great purpose. We secondly see a simple command. A simple command, and it begins with helping Peter understand his misplaced concern. So Jesus tells Peter, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. He then indicates to Peter the means by which Peter will finally seal his testimony and his allegiance to Jesus in death. 
And then Jesus issues Peter one more command, a single matter that will kind of simplify all the complexity. (laughs) Here is the command, Peter. This is what you should do in all of your endeavors, all of your strategies, all of your travels, all of your leadership, all of your evangelism, all of your discipleship. This is what you're to do. Follow me. Follow me, Peter. I'm so thankful there's statements like this in the Bible. You know, sometimes we can get so worked up in knots about many things. It's great to have these simple statements to return to often. And as last words typically are, I'm sure these words came back to Peter's mind often. Jesus saying, follow me. And he says it not once, but twice to Peter in this text. But Peter, who's walking along, and it reminds us of when Peter told Jesus, he sees Jesus walking on the sea, and he says, Lord, call me out to you. And Jesus says, come on, Peter. And Peter gets out on the waves, and he's doing just great until he looks down at the waves and the wind and everything else, and then he starts to sink. It's interesting. As soon as Jesus says, follow me, Peter, look at verse, um, look at the next verse. He says here, verse 20. So end of verse 19, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turning around. (laughs) Follow me, Peter. Next statement from Peter. Peter turning around. Turning around and looking somewhere else. It's as if Peter's curiosity gets the best of him, and he asks Jesus what Jesus has in store for John. Peter had just been told his future, which involved many years of service terminated by death. Would this be the same case for this beloved disciple of Jesus, John? curiosity might have been birthed from some genuine love or concern for John. Or it could have been out of some desire for equal treatment. We don't really know. It could go either way on it. We certainly know that Peter had a very close friendship with John. But whatever reason, for whatever reason, Peter is concerned regarding John's future. What does Jesus have in store for John? And I wonder how often we get similarly distracted away from following our Lord. I can remember as a boy when being told to do something by my parents, often wondering and sometimes regrettably saying out loud what this meant for my brother. (laughs) What does Adam have to do, if you're asking me to do this? What about him? What are your commands for him? So should I be so surprised that when interacting with my own children that they take after their father and ask similarly when told to do something, well, what about my brother or my sister what are they supposed to do i remember getting hearing some variation of mind your own business jess what i tell your brother to do is none of your concern your concern is to do what i've told you to do immediately and completely and so i follow the same corrective in my own parenting as it normally goes right we end up following and saying the same words that our parents said to us and giving that redirection but if we're honest This isn't merely a problem for us while we were children, and it's not merely a problem for our own children. It's a problem for adults just as much. We easily land in the same patterns of thought and speech. Have you ever felt unfairly singled out and required to be be required to do things that maybe at the workplace and thought, well, what about my coworkers? What are they asked to do? What are we doing with them? Have you ever felt the burden of a disproportionate amount of work in a group project and complained, why can't others pull their weight on this thing? Have you ever felt a little peeved at the amount of time work service you've given to a particular ministry and looked around and wondered why others aren't giving similar amounts of time or energy or work to the same thing? Have you ever wondered before, but Lord, what are you asking him to do or her to do? Or perhaps you've, had, you've desired the difficulties that are falling on another. This is maybe a little more altruistic. Like, I wish that their sufferings could be mine. I think especially of parents who deal with the sufferings of their children. And wanting to literally swap places with them if, if we could. But whatever the case, have you ever felt these sorts of things? Desires and an overwhelming, unhealthy desire to either know the future state of affairs for someone else or perhaps even of their soul, to know where they are with Jesus. And while we should be concerned about the relationship of others and their relationship with Jesus, that cannot ultimately be our driving concern. For it can wreak havoc on our own service to the Lord and to them for that matter. Have you ever needed to say to your own soul, mind your own business? Mind your own business, O soul. 
Well, I think there's an even better piece of direction that our souls need to hear. For the truth is that often when the soul is looking outwardly like that, it almost, it almost always is minding its business. When these sorts of thoughts consume us, and they make expression in our attitude or in our body language or in our speech. Our soul is trying to call for what it thinks is equal treatment. Or it's wanting to take control of things that are not within our soul's control. It's a selfish bent within us to try to control things that are not ours to control. And so in some senses, I think it is our soul minding its own business. That's the problem. It's that we're minding our own business rather than minding the Lord's business. So Jesus gives a repeated redirection. He redirects Peter's focus. Peter needs to be reminded that these things are outside of Peter's jurisdiction. It's as if Jesus was saying this is on a need-to-know basis, and you do not need to know that. That is not for you, Peter. And even if it was such, and this is where this hypothetical comes up, even if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? What was to happen to John should not deter Peter from following Jesus. And then Jesus again repeats to Peter, this time emphatically, you follow me. You see, the ultimate antidote is not mind your own business, but mind my business, Peter. Don't look to them, don't look to yourself, but look to me. Follow me. You follow me, Peter. Jesus said in another occasion, Sermon on the Mount, if each day has enough trouble of its own, and therefore we ought not worry about tomorrow because there's plenty of, of stuff on our plate this day, then certainly we ought not take on worrying about what the Lord's plan is for everyone else. Can't even deal with your own self today, much less your own self tomorrow, much less everyone else and their tomorrows. Our aim must be to please the Lord and serve Him and others as He commands. See to loving God with everything and then others as ourselves. I think there's a few points of application that we might make here, and I kind of kind of trace this out a couple of different directions. First of all, I think this corrective is helpful. When we're in an evangelistic encounter and someone brings up an objection such like, well, what about the person in deepest, darkest Asia or Africa who's never heard about Jesus before? What about them? What's going to happen with them? And they use this as a way to avoid the question that's being put to them right there is, what will you do about Jesus? But they're saying, well, I can't, I can't even listen to this because what about those people who have never heard about Jesus? You're saying in order to be saved, a person must trust in Christ. But if they've never heard of Christ, what will happen to them? How could they be sent to hell? I think there's a couple of things that would be helpful for us to remind them of. First of all, The person that is being spoken to right now does not fit in that category. You yourself, dear sir or madame, are not that person in deepest, darkest Africa or Asia. You are being presented with the truth of the gospel right here and now. What will you do with this? The excuse will not work before the Lord. Well, what about so-and-so? The question is, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with my son? Tell them to stop trying to shift responsibility for their own actions. The second thing you might follow it up with is, if you care so much about those people, then for certain you need to come to know Jesus so you can go and tell them about Jesus. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to forsake life here, to go there to tell them about him. Often what you find and expose is that they have little heart or compassion for those people that they supposedly have set up as hypotheticals. They don't care about them, and they don't care about their own souls either. Because they're rejecting the good news of the gospel, which can save their soul. And they have little care other than presenting them as an objection for those who really are lost in countries that don't know Jesus. Because if they did, they'd come to know Christ. And then they would go and tell them about him. Another road of application, what... What about when we as Christians criticize the quantity or quality of the service of our brothers or sisters in Christ? 
I think, again, this, this is instructive to us. You follow me, Jesus says. You follow me. What others do or do not do should not deter us from doing what we ought to do. This filters into marriage. What your husband or wife does or does not do does not, does not then indicate what you should do or not do. Each servant will be judged by his master, not judged by fellow slaves. Jesus' point here is certainly not that we don't care about others. A great deal of our service to Jesus is shown in caring for others, loving them, supporting them, encouraging them. It's the reason behind our care about others that's under inspection here. Care for their souls, look out for them, yes, sure, but delve into their future circumstances unrevealed to us or look to them in comparison of what we're receiving or not receiving? No. We should learn to thank the Lord that there are different differences between us, that God by his grace has distributed his gifts in unique ways. There's a sort of division of labor within the body of Christ. We're gifted in different manners. And we should celebrate those differences and serve him in our unique ways. And instead of maybe we can redirect these mis- misdirected concerns in a, and give them new direction. First of all, by remembering these words, you follow me, so we follow Jesus. And as we follow him, encourage others in using their respective gifts to work for the Lord's glory. Not to criticize, but to encourage and empower and help. Another application that we can draw from this is that our manner of death is in the Lord's hands. And it may be greatly varied. Jesus says to Peter, if John should remain until I return, what does that concern you? Wright says it this way, the the most important thing for the future is for both Peter and John to learn that God makes no mistakes in casting. Oh, it feels like that from time to time, no doubt. There are many times when faithful Christians look with puzzlement and, alas, envy at one another and wish they could swap places. But part of Christian obedience, part of accepting our commission as the language of our forgiveness, is knowing that we're called to follow Jesus wherever he leads us, not wherever he leads the person next to us. The Lord may call some to die as martyrs. Others may face death under other circumstances due to old age or sickness or etc., Some may be found living when Jesus returns, but regardless of those situations, we each are called to follow Jesus. F.F. Bruce said, One disciple may bear his witness in martyrdom, another by reaching old age in relative peace, but both may be equally faithful disciples. I love the way that the heroes of faith are described in Hebrews 11, because you hear both sides of this. Listen, this is uh, starting in verse 33 of Hebrews 11. We're talking about these people who, by faith, did various things. So, by faith, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut lions' mouths, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Note that one in particular. Escaped the edge of the sword. Come back to it in a minute. Put foreign armies to flight, and some received back their dead by resurrection, while others, listen, were tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, Sawn into, tempted, and note, put to death by the sword, were destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. But then the overall statement is given of all of them, verse 39, but all were men of whom the world was not worthy and gained approval through their faith. In other words, there will be some people by God's sovereignty who will be delivered from the edge of the sword. There will be others who will see the sword come right through them. There'll be some who will be delivered from prison. There'll be others who will live all of their days in prison and die there. And these are things that are outside of our control. Certainly you've had a moment in your life, maybe when reading a history book or seeing a movie of some historical event, and thought in your mind, what would it have been like to have lived then? What would it have been like to live during that time in that place, in that geography? If right now we were all living in a country that was not open to the gospel, what implications would that have on us? You see, the Lord has different manners of death for all of us. We'll all 
die once and then after this the judgment. But the manner might be different. Maybe I could summarize all of these kind of applicational thoughts by the idea of this. Make sure that you focus on the proper thing. Make sure that your concern is concerned with the right thing. Hendrickson says it well. Peter must not be so deeply interested in God's secret counsel that he fails to pay attention to God's revealed will. You see, Peter's delving into what's going to happen with John. What's John's future like? Now, does Jesus know it? Absolutely he knows what's going to happen with John. Had Jesus revealed that? No. His concern is with John's future when his concern instead is Jesus' redirection would be, you follow me, Peter. I think this is a tremendous lesson for us as well. Generally speaking, it is easy for us to give our attention to, to things that are not revealed and to neglect the things that are revealed. We spend far too much time fretting over that which is not revealed to us while we neglect that which has been freely given unto us, especially for our instruction. There are times when questions into matters that are unrevealed to us actually keep us from doing what God has told us already to do. I could use an illustration. If I was... I was shot by someone, and I was rushed to the emergency room, I would be greatly displeased if the surgeon who was attending to me began to ask me a barrage of questions like, who shot you? What sort of gun did they use? Do you think their reason was, was it accidental or was it purposeful? What do you think about gun control? What are your future plans? Where, where are you headed after this? What do you see yourself doing 20 years from now? You know, at that moment, I'm like, well, I'm hoping to live another moment at this moment, right? I, I would, I, the need of the moment was, it would be action. Care for my life-threatening wounds should take precedence. I wonder how often we get hamstrung from doing what God has clearly said by delving into questions about things that he has not revealed and are not for us. The things revealed are for us and for our sons forever, but the things not revealed are the Lord's, and they're not ours. Here's another example, you know, rather than getting worked into knots regarding God's dealings with babies who die within the womb or while still in their infancy, matters which I firmly believe the word of God is silent about, instead of pining over questions that the the Lord has not given specific answers to, we ought instead give our time to loving children and sharing the gospel with them as early as often as often as possible. And trust that, the babe, that these babies are in God's hands. And trust that God always acts justly. You will do what is right by them. Rather than ceaselessly fretting about what college you might go to, or what job to take, or what person to marry, make sure that God's revealed will takes precedence in your life. I'm not saying that these other decisions have no importance. They do. But we must give our focus to following Jesus. And then trust that the Lord who delights to give good gifts to his children will give us in accordance with his wisdom and his grace. Don't be worked into an inactive state over questions that the Lord has not revealed. And meanwhile, neglect commands that God has very plainly given unto us. Now, John at this point is providing now a very necessary correction. Because somehow from Jesus' response, if John should remain until I return, what is that to you? Word traveled through the realm that John would not die until Jesus returned. So John provides this editorial comment that indicates that part of the reason that this whole section was included was to fix this misunderstanding. People had misconstrued Jesus' hypothetical to Peter as an indication to what would actually happen to John. He didn't tell Peter, the answer to your question, Peter, is that he's going to remain until I return. That's not what he said. He said, if I have John remain until I return, what does that matter to you, Peter? What difference does that make? What exactly would happen to John, Jesus doesn't indicate. All that he was doing is correcting Peter's reason for asking. Jesus is not saying... 
what kind of ministry John would have, nor the way in which John's ministry would close. Here we have a misunderstanding, a wrongful inference being drawn from Jesus' hypothetical situation that he set up, in which he was trying to correct Peter's question. And it's just a reminder to us to beware of rumors and gossip in general. In particular, in this particular case, there might have been some Christians who were concerned because if John's about to die and Jesus hasn't returned, and then John does die, uh-oh, Jesus said he was going to come back while, Jesus, while John is alive, but now John is dead. You see how this would wreak havoc on people as they're thinking about Jesus' words. And so John is correcting this wrongful rumor. Gossip can have disastrous consequences. Everything from disparaging someone's character, causing people to fear, causing despair and anger, all the rest. Why truth is so important, and John is upholding it here. I, I almost even wonder if this is, again, a, just an early warning of just how quickly within, within a group of people things can be misconstrued. Miscommunication can happen and wreak havoc on a group of people. It reminds us of why it's so important that we check all traditions of the church by Scripture. That Scripture is the standard. Here's an early rumor that John is still alive in order to put to rest. You know, there are even some superstitious people who are saying John didn't actually die. That he's still alive somewhere. Others said that he was still, they could see the ground moving up and down by his grave. And these kinds of superstitions were, were being affected because, well, Jesus said that, didn't he? Isn't that what he said? It's no wonder why the Roman Catholic Church is so askew to trust so many traditions not found in God's holy word is disastrous. Well, this comes finally then to an appropriate admission. An appropriate admission. And we see two postscripts. It's like, you know, PS and PPS. (laughs) The first one is what's been provided here is an honest witness, an honest testimony. Another another way of saying it is, P.S., this is all true. John has provided a true and accurate account of Jesus' ministry. Remember, John was an eyewitness to these events. And now he had the blessing of several years to reflect upon what Jesus said and did. And the blessing of the Holy Spirit to bring to his mind a remembrance of what Jesus said and did. And to comprehend and understand the significance of of the events that Jesus did. Remember, John is concerned with this, that he's providing these signs. These signs, in other words, not only the miracle, but the purpose behind the miracle, what was being communicated by the miracle. John was an eyewitness to these things. He says in 1 John 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Again, verse 3, listen to it. And we have seen and heard. We proclaim that to you also, so you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is emphasizing over and over and over again, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. This is not second or third or fourth hand. This is direct eyewitness. We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. He says here, we know his testimony is true. There's been some debate about who this we is. Who is the we who says we know his testimony is true? I I believe this is just John's manner of including a chorus of other eyewitnesses, those disciples, others that have been with him, alongside of John's own account. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the authenticity of his word from even the earliest days. It didn't take a Roman Catholic council to determine what was God's word. God's word was instantly identified as God's word by God's people. It's most likely here John's way of saying, my testimony is backed up by many others who were also eyewitnesses and passed on their recollections as well which coincide with the account that I've just given. John even uses this kind of way of speaking early on in his own gospel. If you go to John 1.14, which we had read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the one of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
we saw. If you even go, go back to the very beginning of my sermon, I was quoting from A.W. Pink, and often he keeps saying, we have endeavored to do this, we have written these chapters, we have... You're like, well, who else is with Pink writing these? Pink was writing them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a way of convention saying these are the things that have been produced. I think this is what John is saying. He's saying that this has not only my own testimony of these things being true, but these things are written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who bear witness to the fact that this is true as well. And then he concludes his gospel, verse 25. It's just a beautiful ending. He ends up telling us that this is merely an abridged story. It's an abridged story. PPS, there is so much more. There is so much more. While he didn't record all the events of Jesus' life, John's purpose in including what he did was told at the close of the previous chapter, which we also had read this morning. Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, I didn't include everything. But what I included is sufficient, is what John's saying. I haven't given everything, but what I have given is sufficient. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Bible has sufficient evidence to condemn all men of their sin. We know that even general revelation itself... Sheer fact of God's creative work and power is enough to condemn all the world. Besides that, we have a conscience that God has written his law on the heart. We, we condemn ourselves. We know that we're messed up. We know that we have sinned and done wrong. What's beautiful is that John indicates here that his gospel, and we could extend this to the word of God in general, that God's word is sufficient to lead man to salvation. What I have written here is enough for you to hear and see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that you might believe in him and trust in him, and in trusting in him that you would have life, life in his name. God's word is sufficient to lead a man to salvation. God's word is sufficient to give believers an understanding of God's nature, of his works, and a knowledge of what pleases the Lord. God's word is sufficient to equip Christians for every good work. And then I just love, it's such a glorious way to end his account. So he said that at the end of chapter 20. And then here in chapter 21, he says, it's not merely my finitude that prevents a comprehensive record from being written. He says, I've selected things, but the things I've selected are sufficient to cause you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to have life in his name. But the limitations are not just mine alone. Even the world itself is limited. Even the world itself could not contain all the books that were to be written if everything that Jesus did was to be written. Right? He says, even if it might be technically true that every single deed of Jesus ever did could be written down, that the books being so numerous would ultimately be finite in number. Nevertheless, the point remains, the world wouldn't be able to contain them. The world, this would be too explosive. It would be like trying to play a wonderful symphony on a broken piano. It would be like trying to serve a gourmet meal at a snack bar. It would be like shining light into the darkness, and the darkness not being able to master it. The world couldn't take it. I like the way Carson said it. The the Jesus to whom John bears witness is not only the obedient son and the risen Lord. He is the incarnate word. The one through whom the universe was created. If all his deeds were described, the world would be a very small and inadequate library indeed. John humbly states it this way. What I have written is only a minute part of all the honors that are due to God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's akin to Solomon's statements at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. But will God indeed dwell on earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. I thought this was just a fascinating, you know, what a dedication speech. You know, this is really a shambles compared to what you're worthy of, O oh Lord. But he recognizes the greatness of God. And here John says, Jesus' greatness is so great that it's not only my own finitude, but it's the finitude of this world. This world couldn't even contain the books that were written. And so that reality continues to this day. Books continue to be written. Sermons continue to be preached. Tracts continue to be distributed. Blogs continue to be posted. The story continues to be told. And the world cannot contain the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only the events of Jesus' life, but the implications of his person and his work continue to this very day and beyond. The story continues to be written For Jesus is continuing his work. Praise the Lord that we who know him will not be constrained by this present earth, nor will be constrained by the few years allotted to us here. We'll have the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll have all of eternity to continue to find our joy and our happiness in the Lord, singing his praise, recounting his marvelous deeds, enjoying his presence. We finite creatures will be given forever to enjoy him in all of his infinite majesty and glory and greatness and goodness. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forever more endure the saints and angels' song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we know our own finiteness. Lord, you have given us every evidence to see our sinfulness and our rebellion, our need for a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We try to find hope and peace and happiness and satisfaction and everything other than you, and we find it to be a a vain searching. It's empty. This world is empty, pale, and poor compared to knowing you, our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the vanity of chasing everything else. That even if we were to get any of the stuff of this earth, that we would just leave it once we die. Lord, help us to see the foolishness of storing up treasures on earth. Help us to see your marvelous grace and mercy extended in Jesus, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. Lord, I pray that you would work on hearts in this very moment. You would convict sinners of sin, that you would draw them to yourself. Give them eyes to see your greatness, to call out to the one Savior, Jesus, and find the forgiveness of their sins and find true life, life indeed, and true joy and happiness. We know you can do this work for you who have done it in the past, and we look forward to seeing you do it further into the future. And meanwhile, we await your glorious return. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name.